let's go to the Word. Uh, I want you to turn tonight to Luke chapter 14. The 14th chapter of Luke. And uh, just hold your place there. We'll come to that uh, in a moment or two. If you want to put your finger in Mark chapter 8, that'll get you ready for uh, both these scriptures in a moment. Some time ago, well, a long time ago now actually, uh, somebody wrote a book called Real Men Don't Like Quiche. Don't, real Men Don't Eat Quiche. I never did read the book, so I have no idea what it's about. But I suppose if there was any point going to be made is that quiche doesn't look or sound like a manly food. <laughs> if I don't know whether that was the point the other was trying to make or not. Uh, there's some things that just doesn't look manly. And somehow over the years, Christianity has suffered uh, from the same mindset. Uh, often in TV and in movies, Christians are portrayed as wimpish, spineless, effeminate, soft, even oddball. The typical English vicar on any sitcom and British television says it all, doesn't it? And then, if you go from that to high church with all its robes and regalia, and then, of course, the monastic life of men and women who are shut off in the real world, all of that conspires together to give an image, let it be true or not of those individuals, but it gives the image of religious wimps and wets and sissies and softies. I want to say a word tonight in favor of true Christian men and women. I want to show you that Christianity is for real men and women. In fact, it takes more courage, more nerve, more strength, more moral fiber, more fortitude, more manliness, more femininity to be a true Christian than anything else in this world. Amen. In fact, it takes so much, it costs so much, it demands so much that we need supernatural divine assistance to be true believers in this world that we live in. If that is, if we're going to truly live as Christians. Now, as I speak tonight, the Golf Ryder Cup competition is on in America. And I remember a few years ago, uh, and again, it was in America, and it was on a, one of those rather monster courses. It might have been Pebble Beach, I'm not sure, but it was a monster course. And there was one particular hole, which was a par five, and it was an extremely long hole. It was right to the very limits of what a par five could be. And the difficulty was that the tee shot, to get from where you hit off to where you land on the fairway, Uh, there was a a tremendous distance to go and a lot of rough and stones, maybe a part of it was a beach, uh, to get over to get on the safe ground for your second shot. And whenever the golfers come up to that particular tee, normally, of course, there would be a a sign telling you your yardage and then you would know which club to hit. But there was a sign there and it said, all you've got and then some. (laughs) And it became a great talking point that year. All you've got and then some. 
Well, to be a Christian, to be a truly born-again, believing man and woman in this world today, it's going to take all we have got and then some. That's just the way it is. When Jesus began his mission on earth, he really did have some strong, rugged individuals among the twelve. Peter, James, and John were commercial fishermen. They certainly were not soft, that's for sure. And in fact, James and John, he called them Boanerges. He nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder because they wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. How would you like to have those two as your pastor and assistant pastor? And of course, Peter, we know what Peter was like. He was very opinionated and very pushy as an individual. And of course, Thomas was no pushover either. Sure he wasn't. I mean, he just didn't go along with the consensus. Whenever they told Thomas, uh, after the resurrection of Christ, had seen the Lord, he said, well, I don't believe any of you. I'm paraphrasing. I don't believe any of it. In fact, I will not believe unless I see him, unless I put my hand into those prints. He says, I'll not, I'll not believe it. So he certainly wasn't a pushover. Simon, the zealot, was a Jewish paramilitary who absolutely despised and hated the Romans. Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, the tax collector was the most despised profession in all of Israel. And these were just some of the men that Jesus had gathered around him. Saul of Tarsus, when Jesus met him in the Damascus Road, it says he was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. However, having said that, in spite of that, it really is not brain or brawn. It really is not being streetwise or worldly wise because Christ came to give us strength of character. He came to give us strength of moral and spiritual courage, strength of faith, strength of love, strength of compassion, strength of hope, and inner strength, not a physical brawn strength and brute strength, but a deep inner strength to be people of conviction. That's what Christ came to make of us. Listen to these statements from Scripture. And let's see if Christians are wimps or are they winners. In Mark's Gospel, first of all, chapter 8. In verse 34, it said, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, so he's speaking to two groups of people, his disciples, but the general crowd that had followed him. So he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Tough words. 
is not enlisting wimp, sure is not. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, just across the page. Verse 33. When he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then the scripture asks you to turn to at the beginning in Luke 14, reading from verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the use of the term hate there is a Hebrew idiom. Uh, oftentimes, they had a way of accentuating the negative to show a positive. And if you were to turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 37, uh, he actually puts it a little bit more clearly in that particular scripture. Uh, whoever uh, does not prefer me above his brothers and sisters and his mothers and fathers, because there's nowhere to hate anybody, never mind our loved ones. So it's preferring, it's putting him first above even our family. And then he says, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on down to verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler? And how he came and they began to talk about the law and so forth. He says, well, I've, I've kept all these from my youth. He says, well, I'll tell you what Jesus said. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And it says the young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And he wasn't willing to deal with that issue. And so in these few verses in Luke chapter 14, Jesus puts this across. He said, you've got to put God even before your own people, even before your own family. Now that may not resonate too much with us here because for the most part, generally speaking, if you give your life to Christ, uh, your family, for the most part, will respect your decision. They may not agree with it. They may think you're nuts, but they will respect your decision. That's what you want to do? Fine. It's not for me, thank you very much, but if you want to be that, that's okay. There may be some exceptions, particularly if you're of a different uh, persuasion, uh, then uh, your family actually may be very against it, and that can happen. But generally, nobody's going to stone you to death. However, if you're a Muslim, or you're a Jew, or you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, and you say, I'm going to become a Christian, then that may cause you even your very life 
because you are dishonoring your family in their eyes. And, uh, and so they may have to do an honor killing, as they call it, to do away with you. So it can be at great cost. And so there is no room for wimps when it comes to following Christ. This is what Jesus is telling the people. If you follow me, you're going to have to put me first before anybody, including your nearest and dearest. And then again, verse 26, even before your own life, before your own person, you've got to put him before your own very life, before any ambitions that you may have, any dreams that you may have, we've got to submit them to him and submit to him above all things before any of our prospects. You know, the man carrying a cross, you know, we... we Jesus says, except the man take up his cross and follow me and deny himself. And, and very often we, we soften that statement. And we say, well, we know what that means because everybody's got a cross to bear. And what we mean by that is, well, everybody has difficulties in life. Uh, and their may difficulty may be this or it may be that or it may be the other. And that's their cross to bear. I can't bear it for them. I've got my own to bear. That's their cross to bear. But, and, and we soften it somehow that, it, that it's just a problem we've got. And we just have to get on with life. But actually when Jesus talked to these people. And he talked about carrying a cross. They knew exactly what that meant. The man who carried a cross was carrying it to his death. He was going to die. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying, die to yourself. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross. You're going to have to die to yourself. That's what he was really getting at. And also, before our own possessions. He does not forsake all that he has. The word is renounce, actually. It may not necessarily have him to leave everything. But to renounce it in the sense, if I have to, if I'm asked to, would I do that? That's the big question. And so, Jesus here is not just talking to his disciples, he's talking to the crowd. You remember one time he made some statements and many, many walked away from him. And Jesus turned to his disciples and says, will you go also? Will you walk away too? And the implication was, if they had of, he'd have let them. Because what he was laying down was going to cost something. And so is Christianity is it for wimps or for winners? And with our speaker this morning, I didn't know what he was going to speak on, talking about the persecuted church, you realize that for many parts of the world tonight, it's certainly not for wimps, is it? It certainly is costing people even sometimes their own very lives. In Victorian England... In London, amidst all of the squalor of the houses and the people in dire poverty, was a massive brewery, Carrington Breweries. And Carrington Breweries in Victorian England would be the equivalent of Guinness today. It was the brewery. They had hundreds of pubs not only in London, but all over England, uh, under their charge. Uh, 
the owner Carrington was a multi, multi-millionaire. It was big business. And in those days, of course, somebody of that stature uh, would be uh, heavily involved in, in, in all kinds of things, including politics and everything, because of his position. And he was a big man. And he was a tall man and a big, heavy-set man. Commanding appearance at Carrington. And he was a layman in the Church of England. And so he would go to church regularly. Uh, now, he didn't like what he called uh, those emotional, personal, appealing churches. In other words, he didn't like churches that preached the gospel. He preferred the more intellectual, scholarly type uh, in, the, in the rich parishes. Uh, because then he could soothe his conscience about the particular trade he ran that was destroying many, many lives, as is today, by the way. And so he was training his uh, son, Frederick, to take over the business. And part of that training was he would go to college, the best of colleges, and he would be highly educated. And also as part of his training to widen his mind uh, he would be sent to the continent very regularly, uh, sometimes to live for weeks at a time there, uh, to take in all of the culture of the continent so he'd become not only intellectual, but a great man of culture and all the rest of it. And Fred Carrington did that. And, uh, and so he was in line to take over the whole uh, family business. And then Fred Carrington had a, a very close friend a Lord Garva. And Lord Garva shocked him one day and surprised him greatly because he said to him, you know, Fred, I have got saved. I've become a born-again believer. And that was everything against what Fred wanted to hear because he was more high church and didn't want any of that born-again stuff and all that preaching of the gospel thing. That wasn't for him. So he was really taken aback, and he's quite shocked by this. But anyway, time moved on, and uh, as he got near to taking over the business, uh, it was winter time, and so he spent about three months in the south of France during the cold winter months, away from the cold and smog of London. And while he was there in Cannes in the Riviera, he met another young man that he didn't know, William Rainford. And William Rainford was, was there for the good of his health, and uh, the two struck up a friendship. And over the next two or three months, they became firm friends, and they talked about everything under the sun, and they got on so well, and it was great. Uh, the conversation was wonderful, and they enjoyed each other's company. Then the time was over for them to come home, and they came home. And after they came home, uh, Fred Carrington uh, give uh, his, his new friend an invitation to come and stay at Wimbledon at his father's big mansion. And so naturally he came. And he was to stay over a weekend. And again, the conversation was wonderful and they enjoyed each other's company and he was looking around the house and it was great and his newfound friend. And then it came time for, for him to leave. And Rainford said to Fred Carrington, he says, Fred, I feel very guilty. He said, why do you feel guilty? He says, well, all of that time we were in the Riviera, all those months and weeks, and all those conversations we had, he says, 
There's something I never told you, and I should have told you, and I'm going to tell you now. He says, what is it? He says, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. And I feel very guilty because I should have talked to you about your soul, and I didn't. And Fred Carrington said, <laughs> he said, Rainford, he says, listen, he says, now don't spoil the moment. He says, why have you brought this up? I don't really want to hear this. And so he felt by that that he really couldn't continue the conversation. But Rainford said to Fred Carrington, he says, well, I'll tell you what, he says, I'm going to be going. I ask you to do one thing. Make me a promise that when I go, you will read the third chapter of John. That's all, just the third chapter of John. And he left that night. And that night, Fred Carrington put on his house coat, and he got out his pipe, and he pulled out a Bible from his library, and he thought, you know, I'm very curious about this. This is a funny thing. He says, my oldest friend has said they've got saved. My newest friend is now saying, he also has got saved. It's a funny thing that, I think I'll just read this chapter because I'm curious. And he started to read through the third chapter of John. He got to a certain point and he realized what it meant and what Jesus meant to be saved. And the Holy Spirit so convicted Fred Carrington that right at that moment, he got on his knees in his library and he said the sense of his sinfulness and his selfishness overwhelmed him. And he cried out unto God for mercy and to save his eternal soul. And the Lord saved him. That's wonderful, isn't it? Now, here's the problem. Now he has to tell his dad. And old Carrington didn't like it one bit. He thought he had gone off his mind and told him so and told him if he didn't change he would write him out of his will and he would cut off his thousand pounds a week allowance. A thousand pounds a week in Victorian England was a massive amount of money. And Fred Carrington said so be it. And he was cut off. Nothing totally cut off. Written out the will, money stopped immediately. At about that time, Carrington, feeling guilty about what his business had done to the communities and looking around, he decided there was another man who was helping young boys uh, to teach them because to get education those days was difficult. So he decided to help this man to teach these young boys, just to teach them English and teach, educate them. While he was doing that, he began to share the gospel with them. And he was getting them saved. <laughs> and every week he was getting more saved. He thought, I better do something with these young boys. <laughs> and he ran it out of hall. Within one year, he had 300 saved and coming to the meetings. And things was going great. And he was out one day and he was walking to this place where the meetings were and he was walking past a pub, the Rising Sun it was called. And he saw a mother with her two little children. And the two little children were crying with hunger 
and the mother was shouting in the pub for her husband, pleading with him to come out and give her money to feed her babies. And that husband staggered out of the pub and he walked over to him and he struck all three of them and struck them to the ground. He was a brute of a man. And Carrington said, what did I do about it? Nothing. He says, it was a card. And he says, what made it worse? I looked at that sign, the rising sun, and underneath that was my name, Carrington. He says, we owned the pub. And he says, little did that man know that the blow that knocked that woman and those kids to the ground, he says, knocked me right out of the brewery business forever. And he says, I made up my mind there and then that from now on I would give my life to help to win people to Christ. And do you know he did that for the rest of his life? In fact, that 300, then adults were getting saved. And then he had to get a, a building that held 600. To cut long story short, in the end, through people helping him, he built the biggest, the second biggest hall in London at that time. There were two balconies that held 5,000 people. And he started meetings in it, and there was meetings in it every single day for the next 50 years. There were thousands of people who found Christ. When his father was dying, his father was kicked by a horse, and he never recovered. And as he was dying, he sent for his whole family, and he sent for Fred. And he said to the rest of the family, I want you to go out of the room, and I only want Fred to stay, for he knows about these things. And he says, Fred, he said, you made the right choice. You chose the better part. And him and his dad prayed before his dad died. And he spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel for Christ. And God met all of his needs and got him that great big hall. <laughs> and he didn't need his dad's fortune. He didn't want it. But you see, it cost him. He had a choice to make. And his dad says, I'm cutting you out of the will. I'm cutting off your facility. He had a choice right there to make. What if he had a back down? What if he had a backed off? We'd never have heard about him. Sure we wouldn't. But thousands and thousands and thousands of men, women, and children are in the glory today because he took a stand for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Relatively speaking. What does he mean by the narrow way? Not narrow in the sense of being dull or uninteresting or bland or colorless or funless. Doesn't mean that. But narrow in the sense of personal ambition, personal aspiration, personal desire. Paul said, this one thing I 
do. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? This one thing I do. The narrowness that Paul was alluding to here was something that was definite, it was focused, it was determined, it was unwavering, it was single-minded, it had purpose. It was narrow. To become an Olympian, you'd have to be very narrow in your outlook. You'd have to be very, very focused. You'd have to be very, very determined and purposeful. You wouldn't be able to do the things, legitimate as they are, that all of your friends would be doing because you'd have to be in training continually. You'd have your eyes set on the goal and it may be four years away, but that medal, that finishing line is what you'd be looking to and to get there, it's going to cost you an awful lot to do that. You're going to have to be very narrow and very focused. A river without banks becomes a swamp, doesn't it? Can you imagine roads without lanes? Some people drive dangerously, even there are lanes, but can you imagine if there's no lanes? Can you imagine a train without tracks to go on? If you're going to light a fire in your living room, it better be in the hearth. It better be confined, it better be restricted, it better be limited, it better be focused. Otherwise it's going to burn your eyes down, isn't it? Why am I saying this? Well, because today we are being told as Christians we are too narrow. We're too narrow-minded. We're too narrow about marriage, says our Prime Minister, addressing Christians. You Christians are too narrow. You're out of touch with society. We're leaving you behind. That's the implication. I know what the people of Britain wants and needs, and you don't, so you're out of touch. You're too narrow. You're too narrow about sexual matters. You're too narrow about entertainment. You're too narrow about morality, about ethics, about behaviors, about standards. You're just too narrow. You're old-fashioned. You're so last century. Hmm. And sadly, many church leaders are also calling for a broader approach. A fear of being out of date, irrelevant, unpopular. A fear of missing the consensus of people. We have to accommodate and tolerate and reinvent the church for fear of Upsetting the majority. Hmm. But that's not the narrow way that Jesus spoke about. Sure it's not. Jesus was the most unpolitical, correct preacher there ever was. And Paul was the most unpolitical, correct preacher there was in the New Testament too when Jesus left, wasn't it? I mean, they just, they just did not go by consensus or by what people were... If they had went by, the, by what was happening in their generation, if they had watered everything down to suit their generation, we never would have got the gospel, never would have reached us. So much of walking with Jesus is paradoxical, isn't it? The world says, save yourself. Jesus said, give yourself. The world says, live for self. Jesus said, die to yourself. 
The Word says, find yourself. Jesus said, lose yourself. The Word says, be a master. Jesus said, be a servant. The Word says, give. Jesus said, the Word says, get. Jesus says, gives. It is a completely paradoxical way of life. And it totally and utterly goes against the grain of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's why if we are going to truly live an authentic Christian life, then we are not going to be wimps. If we're going to be winners, we cannot be wimps when it comes to our Christian convictions. Amen? Amen. And so whether it's a Fred Carrington, or whether it's you in the workplace, or you wherever you are, we have to take some kind of a stand for our convictions. And while it may not be popular, and while people may laugh at us, and here's the irony, the churches that wants to become so loose and so liberal to embrace everybody are losing people all over the place. <laughs> That's the irony, and they don't get it. But we're not going to be like that, sure we're not. It doesn't mean we don't love people, it doesn't mean we don't want to help people, but it just means there are certain things that we just cannot do. End of, eh? That's just the way it is. And so, what are we? Winners, not wimps. Glory to God. Amen. We're not going to be sissies or softies, sure or not. And so, I was just reading the other day about a famous football coach who was a Christian, an American. This is not so long ago, actually. And he was going to sign one of these top players. And as they were sitting, get ready to sign... The coach said, deal's off. And so the player and his agent sit and said, the deal's off? What do you mean the deal's off? He says, deal's off. He says, why? He says, well, I've been sitting listening to you guys for a while. And he says, you've been talking about a close personal friend of mine, and I do not like the way you're talking about him. He says, we're not talking about a friend of yours. Oh, he says, you mentioned his name several times. And he says, you mentioned it in a way that he says, I don't like and they explained to him about Jesus. And then they apologized. He says, that's okay, don't do that again. Right, the deal's on. <laughs> he wasn't a wimp, sure he wasn't. <laughs> he took his stand, didn't he? So, let's take our stand for Christ, amen? Whether that's in the school, or whether that's in the work, or whether that's even within our own family, sometimes you just have to take a stand. And stick your neck out. I was, Gary and me, I'll just tell you this in closing, but Gary's not here tonight. Gary and me was in the synagogue last Wednesday night. Can you believe that? Now, we weren't there to hear a preacher or a rabbi or anything like that, but there was a lady who's a TD from Dublin who's a TD in the Labour Party. And she said, There is such a venom against Israel. And she says, there's a pro-Palestinian party in Dublin that has such venom and hatred against Israel. She says, you can hardly stand it. Now, she says, I don't agree with everything Israel does or the Israeli government do. But she says, somebody had to stand up and say, now, hold on a minute. And get a balance here. And she says, I have done that. And she says, the, this onslaught I have got. <laughs> she says, I can understand why people backs off because she says, suddenly you're targeted. You are the big target and they will do everything they can to denigrate you and to make you look foolish and to lie about you. 
But she says, you just got to take a stand for what is right sometimes. This is an unbeliever talking about this is This is not a believer. This is just a woman who thinks, this is wrong. I got to do something about it and took her stand. It's a very interesting talk that she had. She certainly wasn't a wimp, that's for sure. So God bless her. She's making an effort. Amen? Let's pray.